0: turn to Genesis chapter 12, where we left off last time, it's been a few weeks. Genesis chapter 12, where we began looking at the person of Abram, who becomes Abraham, later in our story. And this call of Abraham begins not only with a call, God's call to him, but also with a promise made to him. We call the promise, we call the Abrahamic covenant. And And in the tenets of this Abrahamic covenant, we see here um, some important promises and plans of God for his creation, for his people. Rooted in the Abrahamic covenant, as we'll see today, is God's plan for us today, plan for the future. And as we see God's dealing with God's special people and His plan for them and, and the extension of them being a blessing to the world around us, we, fought, we see in the beginning, in a foundational sense, as the book of Genesis, the book of foundations, God's plan for the ages. And it's important to know what God is up to in the earth, isn't it? It's important to understand what our Creator is doing in history, what, he's, what He has done, what He's doing, and where He's going, because it helps us understand our place. It helps us to understand our identity and our purpose, for being here, for we were created, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, we are created by our God for a specific purpose, and it's important to know where we fit in God's program. And we'll, as we'll see a little bit this morning and hear these first few verses of Genesis 12, we find the foundations of what God is doing in our lives today. Now, God called Abraham into the special relationship with himself, and we find here three tenets we, we touched on last time. We really covered the first two, did not get to the third, we see three aspects of this. One is God, God calls Abraham to a land that he was going to promise him. He promised him a seed that is a family innumerable. And he promised that he would, in him the whole world would be blessed. And so first of all, we saw that God gave Israel the land. This is reaffirmed in chapter 15, verse 18, here of Genesis, where, where he says this. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And so God gives the boundaries of the land. He says, I have given you and your descendants. That means that the title didn't expire when Abraham passed away. He gave it to his descendants. God's the one who gave Israel that land. And people can argue with it and disagree with it. But God is the creator of this earth and he can give it to whoever he will. And if someone else wants to give someone else the land of Canaan, you can go create your own earth and give it to whoever you will. But the fact is, God's a creator of this earth, and he gave Israel title to the land. That's a promise. God called Abraham to the land he promised him. Really, a possession that they never have fully possessed, yet will yet in the future, as we see in the scriptures. We also saw last time that God promised Abraham a great nation, a seed. And much of the succeeding ch- chapters in this, in this story in Genesis revolve around that seed, isn't it? Around Abraham, who currently, at Abram was currently at this time about 75 years old and without child. and yet God was going to make him a great nation, and God reaffirms that promise. And he uses terms to describe the, the numbers of his ascendants as stars and sand and dust. Genesis 22, 17 says, Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. In Genesis 13, 16, he says, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. And so God promises Abraham this innumerable descendants and family that we call Israel today. The third thing, which we didn't get to last time, in verse 3, where he tells us in the end of the verse, he says, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. One of the unique tenets of this covenant that God promises is that God's blessing is going to extend beyond Israel to all the families of the earth who be blessed. And one might assume that in reality that this blessing that's, that's mentioned in verse 3 is simply an extension of the blessing mentioned in verse 2. However, as we're going to see this morning, this, this promise in verse 3 is distinct. It's defined for us in the New Testament. It's a distinct and unique promise of a specific blessing that was going to come to the family of Abraham. But God also mentions a general blessing here in verse 2. A blessing that's tied to being his chosen people, a great nation, a special people. And that's a general blessing. He says, you shall be a blessing. And I believe what we see in this passage here is not only the specific tenet of a specific blessing that's going to come to the family of Abraham, but also a general sense of blessing and that he says, you shall be a blessing. God's intention for his chosen people was that they should be a blessing to the world around them. It's part of being a great nation. And what we find here is at least one of the general purposes for God choosing Israel to be his chosen special people is so that they could represent him on the earth and thereby be a blessing to people around him, around them, excuse me. And they did that by, and they do that by bringing glory to God. That was, their, that was God's objective for them. Now we know Israel's history, how they took this privileged position as God and, and made it a bias. They thought they were special people. We read in Deuteronomy 7 this morning that God didn't choose them because they were such a wonderful, special, irresistible people. But God chose them because he chose them. It's just his choice to choose the family of Abraham to represent him on the earth. And their responsibility was not to inflate their ego but instead to humbly in, in service bring glory to God by, what? by allowing God to work on their lives. They're putting God on display in their lives. And we find that in the scriptures. We find that especially in, in regards to the power of God that would work in their lives, his care, his deliverance, his protection. <clears throat> Remember the Red Sea? Exodus 14:18 says, Then the Egyptians shall know, that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. He said, then they shall know. God's display of power of delivering the Israel from the mightiest army in the world and bearing that army in the depths of the Red Sea means then they shall know. And God was going to use the nation of Israel to display the power of his, of his person, the care he has for his people. David and Goliath, the same thing. He says when 1 Samuel 17, 47 David said "Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword or spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. Then you shall know that that we are not saved, delivered by our own strength, David says. Instead, the battle is the Lord. Then you shall know. Israel's responsibility was to allow God to work in their lives so that the world might see the person of God, the power of God, the care of God. Remember the story of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, was going to threaten to ransack Jerusalem. And Hezekiah went, went before God in prayer and laid out his request before God, because no nation has, was able to stand up to Sennacherib as Assyria was a dominant world power. And in Isaiah 37:20 Hezekiah says this, says, Now therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, and you alone. That he was the only God. And Sennacherib had threatened Israel and said, There's been no nation and none of their gods that is able to protect them. You think your God's going to be able to protect you? Well, God took that as an offense, and and Hezekiah spread that before the Lord. And um, if you don't remember the story one day the angel of the Lord went into the camp of the Assyrians and killed 185,000 soldiers without any effort of the Israel um, armed forces whatsoever. God wants to display his power in the lives of his people so that the world may know who he is. That was the purpose for Israel. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 37. Excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 20 is what I want. I just mentioned the other one, Ezekiel chapter 20. I wanted you to see this one specifically. Another aspect of God displaying his person before the world and in in his working in the lives of his children. Ezekiel 20, verse 41. And this is referring to a time yet future, and he says, I will accept you as a sweet aroma when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will be hallowed in you before the Gentiles. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for which I raised my hand in an oath to give your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all your doings, with which you were defiled, and you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight because of all the evils that you have committed. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways or according to your corrupt doings, oh, Israel, says the Lord God. Now here, this, this is referring to a time yet future, a time when God is going to yet regather Israel for the nations they've been scattered to. And, there, and Israel becoming a nation... In the 40s, is not the fulfillment of this promise because there's still more people, some say, in Brooklyn than there is in the nation of Israel. The Jews are still scattered people. They're still under the discipline of God. But a time is coming when God will gather them. He's going to bring them back to the land. And he says here that this is going to impress, have an impression on those who are observing at this time. He says, first of all, he says, when I gather you out of those countries he says you'll be hallowed before the gentiles. Some of your versions may use the term you will be I will display my holiness before the gentiles. And when God gathers Israel it's going to be obvious that God has a special people that he is regathering for his own purposes. And that's going to have an impression on the gentiles. Then they're going to know that Israel is still and truly God's special people. Who, to whom God keeps His promises. In verse 42, it says, Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for which I raise my hand and oath to give your fathers. And God says, Then you'll know when I keep my promise. And God's a God who keeps His promises. And when I keep my promises, because I made an oath to you, I said I was going to give you the land, I'm going to bring you to the land, I'm going to regather you to the land, and then you'll know. And people will know that God keeps His promises. He is a faith faithful God to his people and and keeps the promise that he makes and then there's 44 he says then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake not according to your wicked ways according to your corrupt doings and what God is saying here I'm going to keep this promise I'm going to regather you but I'm going to do so in grace and in mercy I'm not going to deal with you according to your sins because you are rebellious and wicked people but God says you know what I'm going to regather you anyway. I'm going to keep my covenant promise to you anyway, because, and I'm going to do so in grace. And people are going to know the grace and mercy of God when they see this occur, just like he does with you and I as saved sinners. And see, God intended for his special people to, to represent him by simply allowing God to work in their lives, allowing him to display his power, his, his, his grace, his love, and his mercy, and they were to be a holy people. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that you were a holy people. They were to live distinct lives. They weren't to, be, to, to intermarry with the, with the Canaanite nations. They weren't to live like the Canaanite nations. They were to be a holy, sanctified people. And that would display to the world around them the holiness of God, the person of God. The Ten Commandments were intended for that purpose, to establish a righteous standard in a world that did not know God. The, all the distinctions of the Mosaic Law, the, the weird way in which Israel had to live, was meant, was meant to make them a distinct people to teach the world that there is one God who would direct our lives and who we can entrust ourselves to. And so we have this general pers- promise or principle given to Israel in the Abrahamic Covenant You shall be a blessing. God intended his his people to be a blessing. It's tragic that we abuse the privileges God gives us, and Israel did, and they made it more of a a privileged position to feed their ego rather than a place of service to bring the the knowledge of God to the world around them. And yet God uses them anyway, just as he does you and I today. And the same goes for us today, doesn't it? God wants us as his special people, as his church, to display his person to the world around, around us. John 13, 34, and 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another, that by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I often think one of the great questions to, to ask ourselves introspectively as as believers, as a family, as a church, is does the world around us, does our community know the love of God because it's seen in the life of the church? That's a, that's a heavy question, isn't it? Serious question. But that's what Jesus said. The kind of love that he had, the unconditional love, the sacrificial love, the servant kind of love, a love in which Jesus laid everything else aside in order to serve our needs, is the kind of love he wants to produce in us. And by this... All will know, all will know that you're my disciples when this kind of love is real in our lives. A few chapters later in John 17, Jesus prayed this. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I today, isn't it? That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Unity, oneness, is intended to communicate to the world that Jesus is real, that God did send him, and that he has become our Savior and, our, and Lord, in our lives, and when God produces that kind of unity through the power of His Spirit in our lives, the oneness of mind, the oneness of purpose, the oneness of function, it communicates something to the world around us. You don't find that kind of unity in the Elks Club or the Mice Club or the Moose Club or any fishing or hunting or farming or, or sewing clubs. There might be commonality of interest, but there's not the kind of unity that believers can enjoy of Christ to being one-minded in the Scriptures and a one-purpose in the purposes of God. That the world may know. See, today, God is calling out a people for His name, the church, and we're intended to display Him to the world around us through His love, through His unity, and also in our righteousness. Remember that simple verse in Matthew, Matthew five sixteen: Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And so, God intended for the Old Testament people of Israel, for the New Testament people of the church, that we'd be a blessing to the world around us by allowing people to see God at work in our lives. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 12. And so that's the general blessing that's mentioned here. In, I referred to here, I believe, in this passage that, that they, the nation of Israel was to be a blessing to the world around them by bringing the person of God, the knowledge of the person of God, to them by putting Him on display in their lives. <clears throat> but then we have, I think, a distinct blessing. When he, after he mentions, I'll bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. He says, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The third tenet of this Abrahamic covenant. And you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Well, we're not, we, we, we may not be sure what this means except that it is defined for us in the New Testament. So let's go ahead and go back to the New Testament to Galatians chapter 3. We're here God makes it perfectly clear the fulfillment of this covenant promise. Galatians chapter 3, begin with verse 8. Where it says, In the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, And you sh- all the nations shall be blessed. So those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And so Paul ca- says, tells us here that the roots of the gospel go back to the Abrahamic covenant, in which God promised to Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be, would be blessed. And that, na- that idea of all the families or nations of the earth refers to the Gentile nations. What we really see in, in the Abrahamic covenant is not only a reference to the Jewish family that God is choosing to represent him, but to a future family as well, a family we call the church, a family that Jesus was going to redeem, a church that Jesus was going to build according to Matthew 16 and 18. And it's through that family that all nations, even the Gentiles, the whole world will be blessed and that is in the person of Christ. And so this promise refers to Jesus himself, who was the seed of Abraham. Verse 10 going on, it says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live in them. Here in Paul's argument in Galatians, he's, he is supporting the fact that salvation is by faith alone apart from the works of the law. And we know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, Salvation is not of works so as anyone should boast. And he says in reality, when a person seeks to keep the law, probably a specific reference to the Ten Commandments, but you could include in that any any of the commands of God throughout Scripture, what he finds is that he falls short. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so what happens is that law, which is God's holy standard, becomes a curse to us because we're guilty, because we do not keep it. And because because according to Romans 3, it says a law was given that every mouth might be stopped and the whole world become guilty before God. And it doesn't mean the law is a bad thing. Romans 7, Paul says it's not a bad thing. It's simply the fact is it reveals bad stuff in us that we're incapable of achieving righteousness on our own, and therefore the law becomes a curse to us. You know, and really this is important because this is the issue in salvation, and we must keep that in mind when we share the gospel today. The issue is a sinner and his sin. The the solution is the Savior and His substitutionary death for them on the cross. There was a problem that existed between man and God ever since the fall. when, When God says, dying you will die, man was separated from God because of his sin. That's the issue with humanity today. That sin needs to be forgiven. That the sinner needs to be cleansed. And the only solution for that is in verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, when the problem was sin, the solution is Christ became that curse. And when we share the gospel with people, the issue is, where is their faith? And that's that's the argument here. We're not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And our faith is in Christ because he became the curse for us. And Hebrews chapter 10 tells us so wonderfully that Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins forever. One sacrifice. The whole theme of the book of Hebrews is once and for all and forever. Sins have been paid for. And so the issue standing between the sinner and his God when we share the gospel, the good news of salvation, is that they are lost and hellbound because of sin and they need a savior. And they need to put their faith in him, put their trust in him, put, put, put the, their confidence for each, their eternal destiny in the fact that Jesus paid it all and on that basis God promises eternal life. Romans 5.1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why all these other shortcuts of salvation are irrelevant. Salvation has nothing to do with you giving your life to God or you inviting God into your life. Now, those are important things for the Christian. But it is not how we become become a Christian. It is not how we are born into God's family because the problem is sin. That's like having a husband who offends his wife in some major way. And if you don't know how that works, just ask me. I can can major at that. And it would be like completely ignoring the fence and the next day saying, you know, honey, I'm going to buy you a triple-decker ice cream cone, your favorite ice cream cone. And yet in her heart is this little nagging irritation of this offense that is unresolved, and she said, you buy me an ice cream cone, I'll probably shove it in your face. That's the response would get, isn't it? Because the issue has been ignored. It doesn't matter how nice you're going to try to be otherwise, there's an issue. That issue has to be resolved. There has to be forgiveness and, and restoration. And that's the gospel. It's not about asking Christ into my heart. It's not about walking an aisle. It's not about praying a prayer. It's not about any of those things. It's about where is my faith? Is my faith in Christ alone as a substitutionary substitutionary payment for our sins? And that's the message here. And that message was rooted in the Abrahamic covenant. That's where God revealed how this was going to happen. Remember the promise he made to Eve in the garden, that her seed was going to crush the head of the serpent. This is the fulfillment of that promise in the person of Christ. Christ became a curse for us. He died, was buried, and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. And that's how God brings blessing, a specific blessing to the Gentiles. In fact, if you notice back in verse 7, It's where he says here in this argument he says therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham now that that would have rankled a Jew because Jews took a lot of pride in being the physical descendants of Abraham but the Bible here says true sons of Abraham are spiritual sons it's not that the Jews cease to be the physical descendants of Abraham but the relationship God intends is for us to follow him in his faith Abraham becomes in the Bible an example of faith and we need to have our faith in Christ alone and when we put it in Christ alone, we recognize that Christ came through that family, the fulfillment of this promise given to Abraham, that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Because our right relationship with God is not based on lineage. It's based on our faith in Christ. I want you to turn with me to Acts 15 for a moment. And I want to just if possible, briefly, point out the fact that in all these workings in the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of an earthly, physical, special people of God, and the promise of a future people, that people that would be blessed through the family of Abraham, we find two distinct peoples. And it's important to recognize that if you read the Bible literally, if you let the Bible speak for itself, what we still find today is two distinct peoples of God in God's plan and program and history. Let's, let's read here how the Jews became aware that God was up to a special work in the Gentiles in this big meeting they had in Jerusalem at the Jerusalem Council. Notice, let's pick it up in verse 12, where he says, Then the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles, and after that, they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And that's different. God, There's already a chosen people, a physical chosen people Israel, but God is now taking out a people for his name. We call that name the church, his body. And with the words of the prophets, it agrees, just as it is written. And I like this. James goes back to the Bible, the Old Testament, where he quotes these verses. Where he says that after this I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and I will build its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Nowhere in the Bible do you see the church replacing Israel in the program of God. God has a program for Israel. God has a program for the church. Nowhere in the Bible do you see the idea that Israel was the church in the Old Testament and Israel is the church in the New Testament. There are two distinct peoples, and we see that right back from Genesis chapter 3, the distinction between God's chosen family through whom God would bless the rest of the world defined for us in the the person of Christ who is calling out a people for his name. We call the church. We call his body. We call his bride. If you turn with me over to Romans chapter 11, We find that God, here in his his eternal program, Romans 9 through 11, is much about what God is doing with the Jews and with the Gentiles. We find that the Bible in the New Testament period recognized two distinct peoples. Verse 1 of Romans 11 says, I say then, has God cast away his people, the Jews, Certainly not. God is not through with them. He has not cast them away. They're not absorbed into the church, though the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles today who come to Christ by faith. God is not through with his physical nation of Israel. He goes on to say, I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. So God is not through with Israel. They are in a current state of blindness. Now, we can't go through all this whole chapter verse by verse this morning, unless you want to be here for another couple hours. But just some highlights from it. In verse 7, he says they're blind. They're currently in a state of blindness. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, just going back to the Bible again, Old Testament, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says... Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a recompense of them. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see, and bow down their back always. If then, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. They've stumbled, but they have not fallen. That means God's not through with them. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And so we see this idea of Israel having stumbled. We know they stumbled at the stumbling stone. They rejected the Messiah, and Israel currently is blinded. And blindness in the Old Testament, if you look at the nation of Israel, how God dealt with Israel, when God went through periods of discipline, he also associated that with periods of blindness, periods in which they couldn't see, and they didn't understand the things of God because they had drifted so far from God. And so blindness is associated with discipline, and that's the state in which Israel is in today. Verse 12 says, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? And he begins throughout this passage, woven throughout this passage, is appointed to the fact that Israel is going to be restored someday to their privileged position. And now he refers to that in the term fullness. How much more their fullness? God is not through with Israel. In verses 17 through 24, we find this concept of being grafted into the vine. Because the Abrahamic covenant was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, you and I have been grafted in. We are called, as Christians, have being in Christ. We saw that in our study of Ephesians. We are in Christ. In John 15, Jesus uses the vine illustration. And so we've been grafted into the blessings of the vine. We have salvation in Christ. God is calling out a people for his name currently. And we are, in the New Testament, God's chosen heavenly people. Verse 17 notes that some branches, the original branches, the native branches, have been broken off. It refers to Israel under discipline. You know, in our Wednesday night Bible study, we're studying some of the Old Testament books that are written at the end of the Old Testament period before the 400 silent years between the Testaments, a time of darkness for Israel. And God is pointing out to them throughout those books that the reason he had disciplined Israel in the first place by allowing the northern tribes to be completely overrun and forgotten, to allowing Judah to go into captivity under, in, under Nebuchadnezzar for 70 years was because of their sin and their rebellion and their hardness. And even after they go back to rebuild the temple and, and the city, he says, have things changed. You're still living sparsely. You're not living like the bounty, the, the bounty you should be living as the people of God. In other words, he's pointing out to them, you've returned to Jerusalem physically, but your hearts have not returned to God spiritually. And that's, that's the end of the Old Testament. That comes in the time in which Christ came. And that ultimately led to, that rebellion and darkness and that declension led to the rejection of the Messiah. They put him on the cross. And ever since that time, Israel has been under the state of being scattered. That's often how God disciplined the nation. He allowed them to be overrun, and they're scattered today because they're under discipline. God is not through with Israel. In verse 25 here, we find... This he says, "For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own eyes and opinions that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel will be saved, as it is written, "The deliverer will come out of Zion, he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them, when I shall take away their sins, and so on." See, God is not through with Israel. He says, he, they're, they're blind, they're in blindness, they're under discipline, until I'm through with the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles is the completion of the church. We assume it would be the rapture of the church, which is our blessed hope. See, Israel's future hope is a millennial kingdom. The king of kings is coming someday. But the hope of the church is to see their savior. It's the rapture. When we'll see him face to face. And when that period of time begins, we call the tribulation period, we see the marriage supper of the lamb that the the church is called to where Israel's hope is for that restoration to a physical land with a physical king and kingdom. And then we come to here in chapter 11, this tremendous declaration, which is really, an ex, it was really a, a crescendo to the wisdom of God that was impressed upon the apostle when it was written. That God can, is dealing with two peoples. That the Abrahamic covenant was fulfilled his, was fulfilled in the nation of Israel and building this great nation. But also the blessing that was to come through Abraham was fulfilled in the church. God, through Christ, is calling all the people for his name. And God has two distinct people groups. One under discipline, a physical people, people looking for an earthly kingdom, and a spiritual people called his body, his bride, looking forward to becoming living with our Savior. And he says this in verse 30, or 33. O oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who was first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That off-quote verses here are really a declaration of the wisdom of God. In dealing with the peoples of this earth, in ordering history, and carrying out his programs for his chosen people, Israel, and for his redeemed people, the church. God has a distinct plan for both, and it's all rooted back in Genesis chapter 12, isn't it? In conclusion, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Because we saw the purpose for God's chosen people in the Old Testament, was to make him known, and we find that here for God's New Testament people, the church, his body, his bride. 1 Peter chapter 2, let's just go ahead and pick it up in verse 9, where he says, but you are, after he mentions, by the way, the previous verses which mentions that Israel stumbled over the stumbling stone, he says, but you are, the church, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people. That's wonderful, isn't it? What endearing terms that God gives to you and I today. Well, why are we His holy, chosen, royal, special people? He says that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's our purpose, isn't it? Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshy lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. You can see threaded throughout this passage our privilege of displaying to the world the glory of God. Verse 13, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether the king of supreme or the governors or those who are sent by him for the punishment of evil doers, and for the praise of them who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free and yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, and so on. Jews had a very privileged position of being God's chosen people. And God chose them simply in His grace because He made a choice to use the family of Abraham. Through Abraham, He's provided for the world a Redeemer, a Savior, who died on a cross for for, for the sins of the world so that we could become God's special people, a chosen people, a unique people. I think Old King James says a peculiar people. We are the people of God, and God has a purpose for us, that we might bring forth His glory, that we may display to the world The person of God and all his love and his grace and his goodness. Even even as we remember together this morning the Lord in the Lord's table. It's a time we remember a promise that started way back in the garden with Eve. That Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. A promise that was defined a little more clearly for us in the Abrahamic covenant. That through Abraham all nations of the world be blessed and fulfilled in the person of Christ, who has provided the forgiveness of sins and given us a place as God's special people. And as we remember him together, this communion feast we're about to partake in is intended for us to not only remember him, but but to allow that remembrance to impress upon us his great love and our standing and privilege we have in him. And so as we turn to our communion service this morning, may you and I allow our hearts to dwell on, through prayer, through reading a passage of scripture, the great love that was, that was on display, the price that was paid, and the privileged position we have of being God's special people, our chosen people, and the privilege we have as we live together, serve together, and enjoy Him together, of bringing the knowledge of God, showing the praises of him to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful today uh, that you are in control, Father, even in the day and age in which we live, Father, in which things seem so out of control in this world around us. This very study this morning, this brief study of your plan for history, Father, proves that you are in control, that you accomplish your will amongst the peoples of men. And you just ask us to trust you. Just as Abraham trusts you and departed for that land and, and trusted your promises, Father, so you ask us to trust you. And in doing so, Father, you will at work in our lives to make your glory known, your person known. Help us be willing, Father, to allow you to create in us your love, your unity, your righteousness, your holiness, so that men may see the wonderful God we serve. And as we turn to our Lord's table this morning, as we remember our Savior, Father, we remember not only who Jesus is and what he did, but, but who we, to whom we belong, and remember our special standing in him. let our hearts to him together now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.